Tool Room Records has stood the test of time for nearly two decades. And in that time, they've diversified beyond the traditional record label model. And they've pivoted into Tool Room Radio, Tool Room TV, and most recently, Tool Room Academy, which is the world's first record label back degree. We find out the inside info on how Miles Shackleton directs the marketing for Tool Room, how he co-founded Tool Room Academy, and the biggest lessons he's learned from his career so far. We spoke about the process behind Tool Room's rebrand and how they repositioned the business back in 2014. We uncovered what makes a good record launch and a bad one, and Miles talks us through case studies and examples of Tool Room's biggest releases and crossover records. We find out how to grow an art of socials from zero to 30k, including a case study from one of Tool Room's artists, Vice. We also unpacked how to build a relationship with Tool Room superfans and how they nurture that community in all of their campaigns. Miles tells us how taking a course with Google led to the inception of Tool Room Academy. And he talks us through the process of how the idea was conceived, how we pitched it into Mark and Stuart and how we got that off the ground and how that's still a success to this day. And then we also talk through Miles's personal experience and his career journey, talking about how we climbed up the promotion ladder going from brand manager through to marketing director of Tool Room. And Miles really opens up on how he is more of an introvert and how he handles that in a leadership role. So if you want to learn about the ins and outs of marketing a record label, building a brand, building a community of super fans, or how to jump the promotion ladder and how to pitch and win ideas, this is the episode for you. Enjoy. So Miles, I caught your um, panel at Brighton Music Conference and yeah, it really intrigued me. A lot of the stuff you were talking about and you were chatting about life as marketing director at Tool Room. Uh, you were talking about helping grow art to socials up to 30K um, and also talking about things like how artists position themselves. You mentioned things like brand DNA exercises um, and you're also talking through some of your favorite marketing campaigns and I just thought your um, yeah I guess your approach to marketing and brand and social um, was something I wanted to de- dig deeper on so I had to get you on Business Keeps on Dancing um, so yeah thank you for for joining us on this episode. Pleasure no thank you very much I'm uh, I'm a fan of the podcast and I really love what you're doing so I was, I was very very happy to be asked. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so let's go from from the top then. You know, you work for such an iconic brand as, as such as Tool Room. And I'm interested to see where that journey started and how you how you landed such a big gig. And then, you know, maybe rewinding to when you first got into the music industry. Was there a first big break that you had? Did you have a plan? Was it a happy accident? How, how did it all happen? Yeah, so it, it really was a happy accident. I, I mean, I had zero inclination that I'd end up working in the music industry. I, I didn't even think it would be an option for me. Um, I, I had quite a traditional educational background. I went to a boys school. Um, I was quite academic and I, I basically was given the advice of just get into a red brick university, um, study something um, solid in their eyes and, you know, Barclays will come calling and, um, uh, they didn't sadly but there you go um but yeah so i i studied politics at uh, bristol uni and um 
yeah, it it was funny. I I graduated from that, and after I I left uni, I I didn't really have a concrete plan. And I was listening to your chat with um, Kate Osler on your podcast, and you know she said it was it's quite a scary time actually when you graduate, and I completely agree. It was for me anyway because I I didn't have a, have a path. Um, I started off my first thing I got was a sort of temporary job with a, a Labour MP, and I was doing some kind of speech writing and um, policy work for for him. And I remember the first. You know, I thought it would be writing about human rights and foreign policy. And the first speech I got to write was about like traffic calming measures in, in Nottinghamshire. Um, so it it wasn't quite what I had in mind. So basically, I to rewind a bit, I really found house music when I was at university. I went to, as I said, I went to Bristol. I don't know if you've, if you've spent much time there, Sean, but that for me, it's like an amazing city of a melting pot of cultural influences and music and sound and um I found it it was really inspirational actually and um I found a love of house music when I was there and um it really touched me really moved me and I found it quite liberating and um like a lot of people who find a love of music the first thing I did is I went out and bought a set of really cheap belt driven decks and started collecting vinyl and trying to join the dots for myself um learning about the culture reading about the culture um but i never thought it would really lead to anything professional but in a in a really weird way it did and i have a most ridiculous story about how, how i got into dance music so i'll tell you how it went so um so as as i said i was i'd left uni moved back home to maidstone uh, with my parents was basically just looking for records all the time and i became a bit obsessed with this one record by someone called Mark Knight. Um, and it was called the Filthy House EP on a label called Tool and Records. And I spent so long trying to find this one record. And this was before Discogs or um, before it was kind of a lot easier to, to, to hunt records. And eventually I found, I came across this like holding website for Tool and Records. And it said, for more information, contact, contact us at info at so I, gen- I sent them an email saying, you know, hi, I'm obsessed with this record. How can I buy it? Please just let me buy it. Um, and little did I know that back then they'd literally just launched the website. And Stuart Knight, who's now, now my, my boss, um, founder of the label, he was so enamored that the website was working and someone had emailed them that he like uncharacteristically replied saying, hi, you know, thanks for emailing. Tell me your address and, I- and I'll send you the record. Um, so I did. I sent my address over. And he was like, that's next door. So it's just ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous thing. And actually, my childhood bedroom, weirdly enough, overlooked the tool room. Like it's, so the story of tool room is that it was built in Mark Knight's dad's tool shed. He, he built his studio in, in his tool shed. And literally this record that I was obsessed about for, for months, this fairly niche house music record, was made next door to my parents. So it's insane. a ludicrous story, really. And I always, when I tell that story, I always think I'm not sure how transferable that is to people looking to break into the music industry. Um, you know, don't don't go around knocking next door just to see if someone's got a tech house label. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was that that was my that was my entry in, and I basically hung around them long enough that they gave me a job. That's that was my first ever job with music. I guess there's 
there's an element of was it luck, but you, you yeah. wrote that email. No one, someone else didn't write that email, therefore someone else yeah. isn't sat there as, as marketing director at a tool room. That's what true. was that what was that first job when you when you started out? Well, it was very much in the labels like nascent day. So I was just like a very junior label assistant. I was um sending records out in the post, making the tea, doing like assistant work. But I guess the the thing that I brought to it, um, I always say to people that are asking advice about, okay, well, how do you impress once you get in and you get your foot in the door? Like, how do you get that first good bit of um, getting noticed in the first few months? I was pretty good at writing. Like, that was the thing I could offer. I was a pretty good copywriter. Um, so I was able to write quite good press releases and describe um, house music quite well. And Mark and Stu are both super articulate in person, great presenters, much better than me, but they both, you know, agree that copywriting isn't, isn't their thing. So that's really that the little niche thing that I brought to the business. I could describe, um, the music well. And back then, you know, press was so much more of a, a big deal that getting reviews on a record would make or break a record. And similarly getting radio play and having the presenter sort of read out a bit of the press release actually had a bigger impact on um, on a performance of a record than it do- arguably does now. So that that was what I was doing. And I was only there for a few months um, before I went to another label. But And, and then I obviously came back to Tool Room later on after I'd had a bit more success in my career. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a case of joining the dots culturally, digging for records, as you say, writing that email, being proactive, very random. I happen to live next door, <laughs> but um, that's that's how I landed the first job. And what made you want to go back to Seal Room? So I'd um, been out of music for a while. So my basic trajectory was first job at Tool Room, and I went to another label called I Industries, which was part of Universal. So it was kind of an interesting mix of major and independent. And then I left the sector. And I went into the educational sector as a marketer. Um, the story behind that really was that I'd had some success at this I Industries label, but the the industry at that time, sort of mid two thousands, pre streaming, post physical margins were like super tight, and it it was in decline. You know, you look at graphs of the industry over the last twenty years, and that was a major dip. So there weren't as many opportunities. So um, I left the industry and. Uh, a lot of the universities at that time were recruiting youth marketers um, because they were becoming more and more competitive with each other. So I spent some time in the educational sector and um, they, the boys at Tool Room literally called me up randomly one day in 2012 and said, um, we've got the business to quite a strong point, but we're not doing a lot with the brand and we're not doing a lot with marketing. So would you like to come back and be the label's first brand manager? Um, and, and looking at that now, I think that's such a massive leap of faith from them because I think there were probably more qualified people out there that could have done that job. Um, tool room at that time was really, it wasn't a small thing. It was dominating Beatport. It had sold out Brixton Academy. It was certainly already very successful. So it would have been a very attractive job for a lot of marketers, I think. Um, so I'm always forever grateful for them for giving me that chance. And was there anyone that particularly took you under their wing, you know, almost mentored you without maybe even realising it in, in the early days? At Tool Room? 
a tool room, but yeah, I guess just starting out in the music industry in general. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Stuart and Mark, both of them have have done that in different ways. Um, they've got a interesting kind of mix of skills and qualities. Um, Mark is someone who super creative, boundless energy, won't take no for an answer. He'll have, you know, a hundred ideas, you know, 50 of them might be insane and 50 of them might be genius. Um, but he's this bundle of energy and I've kind of happily ridden his coattails at times in terms of his like pure ambition and momentum. Um, Stuart's much more, um, analytical and, um, practical and thinks more about the finance financial side of things super commercial can close a deal um and both in their different ways have imbued me with a lot of confidence um and really put their faith in me so they've both been been great mentors and their father actually who um is a big part of the business he um that we say tool room family a lot it's a big um slogan here but it is genuinely a family business and the whole night family do um, do run it and operate it. And their father, Ken, who is a successful drummer back in the sixties and set up loads of different businesses and exited them. Um, and he brings this like razor sharp commerciality, um, to tour room. And he's mentored me a lot as well. And I've learned a lot about the, you know, the margins and the business side of things at a label. Um, and that I think directly led me to my success at Tourum Academy and setting that up. So, so yeah, those three, definitely. So I'm interested to understand what makes Tool Room, Tool Room. And it's mm. a, such an iconic brand. It's, I guess, survived the test of time. Is it, is it people? Is it the culture? Is it the, you know, quality of, of output? What, what to you makes it unique? Yeah, it's a great question. I, th- I think we, we've done a lot of work on trying to understand this ourselves. And I think what makes a good marketer and brand manager, brand director is a really granular analysis and an understanding of, of your brand and your, your strengths, your weaknesses. Um, for me, it's a mixture of things. I mean, I have to say, first of all, the sheer quality of the A&R team, um, the, the consistency of our music releases, I think is what underpins this business and all the offshoots that we we have from it really come come from that and um the label was designed in order to give what they call get out of free jail records to djs like that's the point of the label it's the purpose that's why mark stewart set it up because they wanted to be the label that a dj reached for when the party was flagging you put it on a tour and record comes on and bang you're back and back in the game and i think that requires a certain level of A&R quality and um, just skill in finding the best music out there. So I think that has always been the underpinning story and quality of, of Tool Room. And then I think another unique thing about Tool Room is the fact it's quite approachable. And that's something that our fans are massive on. Like we did um, a really big rebrand project in 2014 and part of that process was we spoke to, had focus groups with loads of our fans, invited a load into the office, did a load virtually with our 
international fans. Um, and I, I went through this process of um, just asking our fans what they felt about us, what, you know, what feelings came up when I said tool room. And I remember I had different colored post-it notes. And when, when anyone said something of a similar type of thing, I'd write it on a particular color. And at the end, I'd put it all up on a board and you'd see a kind of color heat map of certain qualities. And the word approachable came up a disproportionate amount of time, which is quite strange for a record label. Like it isn't the first thing you think of when you think of a music band approachable. And I think um, that sort of down to earth, almost regional, um, friendly family thing is what really attracts people and pulls people into the brand. And so we've done a lot of work around that. And I think that's something that has kept our fans and our audience so loyal to us, um, the fact they feel connected. So that, and I think that the music quality are the things that really underpin the tour and brand. I think so many brands in the, in the music industry and specifically what, what I see quite a lot with festivals and events is more of a monologue and more of a shouty broadcast. Yeah. This is what we are. We need to get this mm. message out and sell this many tickets. And very, very few promoters really understand the importance of, of creating a dialogue and whether that's using social media to invite engagement back and not just broadcast, but also, you know, hear it from the horse's mouth. You can't just, you know, I, I see a lot of assumption, uh, decisions made on um, assumptions, hunch, and, you know, people are, will come to us and say, we need to sell more tickets. What's the hacks? What's the shortcuts? Yeah. Often the best thing to do is just speak to your audience, see, see what they especially with, with, with the climate at the minute, you know, we know cost of living's gone all. Mm. Um, the the market is, is, is oversaturated and, and we've all seen a bit of a rocky summer of, of sales, but I see very few people actually speaking to, to their audience to find out, you know, you know, is it, is it affordability? Why aren't they going to events? Do the customers feel like it's oversaturated or have they fell out of habits because of COVID? You know, you don't know until, until you speak to them. Oh yeah, completely. I think I'm just a massive fan of like qualitative research in general. I just think for me, I glean so much more from a conversation with someone or a group of people than trying to do research through Big, I think we're obsessed with scale and big numbers. Like, let's do a survey to 10,000 people and see what they feel. And there's, there's so much good marketing that comes from really strong um, qualitative research. And for us, it was super illuminating. And again, I think the thing about Tourum and what's different, even myself, there's, I probably know, um, a lot of our fans personally and would consider quite a lot of them as friends. So, when you go to tour room events, it doesn't, it feels like there's this kind of, um, the barriers down between the brand and the fan. And I think where we've done that really well, um, some, it's been some of our, our best marketing. And I think with tour and family as a, as, as a brand concept that we've done, there's this interesting juxtaposition of tour room being this big, like global thing. Um, and this work we're doing on an almost like intimate super fan level. And I, I really think the space between those things is where there's really fertile marketing content. Um, I read a lot, an article like a lot of marketers in, in my generation by Kevin Kelly about the power of the super fan, power of the thousand, having a thousand fans. And it's so true. I think that, you know, there's this modern obsession with like scale and exponential scale in your marketing. 
And actually, you get this really disproportionate ROI on your marketing if you spend a lot of time on your super fans because they become your sales force and they, and they, they spread it out for you. Um, and yeah, it's something that I'm really proud of that we've done within that area. And I think, I think a lot of brands should look at it because there's a lot you can glean from that, that sort of more focused work with your, your super fans. How do you go about executing that theory in a campaign? So for example, you've got, um, you know, events are part of Tool Room, you've got the label, you've got social in general, where you're trying to, um, you know, build a community. Is there, yeah, how does that manifest in, in your campaigns when you think of the, the super fans theory? Well, to an extent, it's like an always on thing. Um, it's what I like to do is like seed it into the brand so that it's part of how we um, talk and, 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 and radiate ourselves. It's, 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 it's a kind of personality trait as much as a, as a campaign. Um, how does that look? Well, um, for example, we have a separate email list for super fans that they get information before anyone else. So on a weekly basis, we'd be sending out a little quite under deliberately underproduced emails if it's been written as you would personally to a friend. And they'll get records before even our top tier DJs do. So we're, we're kind of trusting them with SoundCloud links of records that haven't even been promoted yet. Um, what, I'm, what I really like in marketing is when you've got a concept and you actually live it and you live it and breathe it. You don't just have a slogan. Do you remember Innocent Smoothies? I mean, obviously they're, they're really big now. And I always loved what they did with marketing because they had their own real specific tone of voice and personality on, on their bottles. They were, they were genius. And I remember they had this like thing on their bottle saying, oh, do you want fancier chat? Call us on blah, blah, blah. And if you called that number, you would literally get through to someone and you could have a conversation with them. And it's like that thing of, they they are at, they're actually delivering their personality in real terms rather than just sloganeering. And that's at all what we, we try and do. So we have a separate uh, email list. We have um, separate ticket links for super fans. We're pretty relaxed on things like VIP for super fans at events. Um, and we do like exclusive events as well. Like, again, they're not publicized. We don't really shout about them much afterwards. Um, where we like have exclusive like parties and stuff, so it's um it's a really interesting area. Something that we yeah we love doing. Yeah, we we've we've tried it before with things like um, WhatsApp broadcast groups. Mm. Uh, I always remember a campaign from from Bicep years ago when one of the uh, albums was launched, and they had these really old school. Um, I don't know you call them like tear away flyers. So yeah, it just yeah said, I remember. One biceps, and then you um, you pulled off the number, and I imagine if you you texted, then you got put into this group um, to hear first about the album. Um, but it it felt like proper nineties rave in a phone that type of yeah, thing yeah. Um, yeah i think i think the good thing about that stuff as well is you get um you get the exponential kind of amplification of it through user-generated content so like we did um we did this thing where for our 600th was it, yeah 600th radio show for tour and radio we did like a party in a in our local pub and we set out um invites to our super fans and they were like beer mats that we got designed specifically and we we had like a whole theme party of it being like a kind of lock-in and um 
when I look back, it was like a ridiculously disproportionate amount of effort on quite a small event, like to the point I remember I was putting up bunting in a pub with like tour and branding. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Um, but um, obviously, there's only like 100 people there, which is tiny in the scale of like, everything we're trying to do as a business. But you get people like sharing that stuff so passionately because it's different and it's unique. And then all the people watching those 100 people watch it and think, I want to, I want a piece of that. And it's, as all marketers know, like getting recommendations, word of mouth is, is always the number one thing that you're, you're aiming for and is more impactful than anything in the world is word of mouth. And, and I, I think these types of activations really, really achieve that. Where do you sit with things like, um, I've seen it being phrased as, as dark social, which is the idea of maybe WhatsApp groups or Telegram, Discord. Um, then I guess you've got the, the idea of NFTs and collectibles. Where do you sit with the kind of future of community building and how it seems to be going through the kind of next evolution past beyond just social media? It's super exciting, I think. Um, I think that it's a natural reaction to big tech and how hard they make it for us. We've built these massive communities and then it becomes harder and harder to just to reach them through organic content. And, and I think, you know, people are getting served with so many ads and they want to just go somewhere else and, and, and communicate there. And so I'm, I'm for it. And I think in, in all honesty, like I sometimes think it's quite hard to catch up. And I, I sometimes think I'm outside of the age bracket of truly understanding it. And that's where I try and lean a lot more on my colleagues who, who are super passionate about it. I know, um, within the academy, which I imagine we'll talk about later, there's, we have like loads of Reddit groups and Discord groups and it's happening without us. And I find that quite exciting as well because, um, we've not tried to deliberately make activity happen, but our community are, 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 are forming groups themselves. And, and, um, I almost don't want to get in the way of that because it feels like it's a natural private space where they're talking about us. And I'm kind of happy with that. Um, and then in terms of like, yeah, NFTs and, and everything like that, I guess sometimes I think I'm again, I'm, am I a little bit behind in, in this space? Are we the type of brand that naturally, um, seems to operate and pivot into that world? I think like a lot of brands, like, we're a bit unsure. We're a bit unsure as to what the value add is and, and what we can what we can do. I've seen Dirty Bird do some really cool stuff with NFTs and because of their nature of their artwork and where they're based over in the West Coast, it kind of feels like a natural fit for them. Whereas for us, when you talk about our brand values of being, you know, independent and being all about the music and being like all about family and community, how we navigate into that new world of audience and marketing is um i'm not sure we've quite figured that out yet but that's the joy and challenge of of this of this job and this industry isn't it it's that, that constant evolution and figuring out what to do so just to flip back to your to your journey then for when you came in back to the room brand manager you're now yeah. marketing director that is a pretty big leap what did that process look like and, and how did you um yeah land the role that you're in now? Yeah, so I think in my twenties, I, I rejoined Tourum when I was just turned 30. And I think in my twenties, I personally felt like I hadn't 
hit my potential. I was doing some good stuff, but I, I felt a little bit frustrated that I wasn't quite where I wanted to be. When I joined Toolroom, I think, rejoined Toolroom, I think it was really good timing for what the company needed and what I needed. It was that sense of just like it being the right time and the right environment for me to thrive. I think um, as someone who's kind of naturally, like I think confidence came a bit later to me in life than it has other people. And I think that joining Toolroom really, really built my confidence up because there was this company, this brand that was there to be grown. It had everything there ready. You had this amazing quality product, these really talented, creative people, and they just hadn't made a couple of the right moves into the brand. So I just came in and did some stuff that I thought was quite obvious. Um, I, I, as I said earlier, I think the rebrand of, of, of the business in 2014 probably cemented um, my role in the company as someone who can deliver. Um, I think that it was a big risk what we did and it paid off eventually. So I think that's one of the reasons why I was probably pushed on. Um, I did notice like a step change in my performance and my confidence um, in the way I was um, acting, behaving, where I was being. I felt different after a couple of years of being at Toolroom. Um, and as I said earlier, Mark and Stu, they definitely, in their different ways, the way they've mentored me and brought me through, just gave me so much confidence and probably got me out of my own head a bit and made me worry less about things. And I could just go and deliver some, some good work. So yeah, it's, it's been a kind of an interesting 10 years. And, um, and then I guess building the Tourum Academy as well, probably cemented that because it's a new income stream. And I think being really like super, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a nice thing to say, but like when you bring income into a business, then it is a different ball game in terms of your career progression. And you, if you put your head on the line to deliver um, numbers and, and bring them in, um, then, you know, opportunities and reward comes from that. So, yeah, it's a mixture of things. Yeah, talk, talk me through um, Tool Room Academy because I think it's, you know, it's pretty insane that you've worked your way up up the ranks at Tool Room, then also pitched in an idea for basically a new a new business within the business and then got that off the ground and it's already um in double 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 figure profits i believe yeah thank you yeah double digit growth i think it's been definitely a a really rewarding part of um of my career i think where did it come from so as i said earlier i'd been working in education um for a bit and at that time in my career i did feel a bit lost and a bit like what am i doing here um but looking back, it kind of all comes full circle. I learned a lot about um, student acquisition. I, I learned a lot about just the sheer numbers of people that are looking to learn. And um, I guess that stayed with me. But then when I got to Toolroom, there's a number of things that got us towards this idea. First of all, the sheer number of demos we were getting. We were getting like a thousand demos a week sometimes. So we, there was this massive segment of people that wanted to send music in and wanted our feedback on it. Um, secondly, I noticed whenever we put out content that was like, you know, how to, how to get your demo heard, something like that. And it would be okay content, not like mind blowing content. It would get a disproportionate amount of engagement on it. 
So that made me think, okay, there's this appetite for that information. There's this massive segment of people that are sending their music in. Why can't we get into this space a bit? Um, so we set up a partnership initially with a company called Fader Pro. Um, and we started filming production tutorials with, with artists. These are like to a penny now, like they're everywhere. But I think back in the day, it was quite an innovative thing to do. We were amongst the first to, to do it because artists back then were more reticent to show their creative process, um, either because it maybe seemed a bit uncool or because they didn't want to give their secrets away. But we, I think we were kind of early on that. And um, so we did that. And actually, it was the launch of that idea. We did it at ADE. We did like a, we booked a small studio just to launch the fact we were doing it. We got um, Harry Romero, who's an amazing uh, producer from New York, come in and do like a live masterclass. And I remember watching that happen. And I was actually, what I was doing, I was watching the people watching him. And I'd never seen such concentration in like the iPhone era of someone just watching, like locked in on someone. And in all honesty, I remember seeing a whole business in that, in that moment. I could just see like the courses, I could see the live events, I could see the, um, the added products we'd go on and do. So yeah, it, it, it was a case of then of building, of building from there. And, and now we've got to the point where we've got, yeah, a very healthy suite of production courses. Um, we launched the first ever degree backed by a record label um, in the world, which was awesome. We've just gone into tech. So we've now built our first plugin, which we released a few weeks ago. Um, and we've done conferences all over the world where we're breaking down that barrier between um, artists and the label. And again, it feeds back into that tool and family thing. It feeds back into what tool room is because ultimately, as I said earlier, we're all about amazing music and attention to detail. And we're all about being approachable and, and friendly and welcoming. So it feels like a natural extension of us at our best. And how did you deal with the early stages of a, you've got, you know, the idea of a cold start problem. I was reading a book uh, called The Cold Start Problem about how Uber basically started from scratch and the kind of growth growth hacks and growth, growth mechanics of, of how that happens. You see similar things with um, Facebook, Tinder, Airbnb. But I think it's a really interesting problem that, that a lot of people do face because you get cold start problems with social channels. You get cold start problems with um, new businesses and, you know, how do you find the audience and how do you sell it in? And then there's a process of, of learning, adapting, being humble, being humble enough to say this is actually completely different to what it started out to be, but that's fine. We'll, you know, we'll go with, with what works. And what did that process look like? Yes, great question. So I guess it was easier in the sense that it wasn't truly cold because... I had this amazing brand that is that I was diversifying, so I wasn't starting from zero, um, and and the demand was kind of there. It was kind of there for the taking, I think. But there were certainly a load of challenges along the way. Like I think convincing, uh, you know, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, convincing Mark that it was the right thing for us was was a challenge because he'd painstakingly built the reputation of Tool Room, and he didn't, you know, education isn't the first thing you think of when you think of like cool and edgy and all, all these things you essentially want an independent brand to be. Um, so there was a lot of learning along the way in terms of how you, how we presented these educational products 
so that it wouldn't water down the core message of Toolroom um, and yeah, still make it feel like cool and edgy and um, and relevant and not too dry and stale and stuffy, which is what education can be when marketed poorly. So learning how to do that um, and getting artists involved were really, were really um, difficult initially. And then the other thing that was a massive learning curve for me in the business was um, to do with you're playing with people's like dreams essentially and their hopes and their expectations. Someone might have this ultimate ambition to be a DJ or producer and you're basically selling a product that might help them. And I think you've got to be really careful with not over-promising things because it can be quite easy to create ads that are super hypey and over-promise and under-deliver. Um, so getting that right and making sure that we weren't overselling. And also, once our students had gone through the courses, I didn't want them to feel abandoned. And that's something that I've worked on really hard recently with like our alumni community. So we got some feedback about students who'd been through our courses that sort of had this amazing experience, this whirlwind three months, and then it was all over and they're like, well, now what? And actually that can have quite disastrous impacts for the brand in terms of people, you know, being unhappy with their experience or just feeling a bit let down. So we do a load of work around our students once they've finished our courses to keep them learning and keep them engaged and, and just keep helping them. So that that's that's a massive thing. And then one more thing I learned to do with diversity, which was really interesting, was we put on um, these events where we would do like a kind of like a light, like a conference type of thing, educational conference in different cities around the world. And we um, we actually launched it at, at BMC where you and I met um, several years ago, and we got some feedback um, from from some um, female producers that attended. And it was, they were like, I just felt a bit intimidated because it was basically like all men and then just just me here as, 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 a, as a female. So we, we've done a lot of work around encouraging um, more of a gender balance um, in, our, um, in our programs and making sure that we have really um, good representation across everything. And also we've set up um, uh, an initiative called We Are Listening, which is, um, a platform where we encourage more female identifying producers um, to make house music and, and grow their careers. So that was a big learning curve too and, and something that I'm super proud of being involved in. Is it mostly, uh, with the Academy, is it mostly kind of music production or do you do anything with the students in terms of marketing and positioning yourself as an artist? Yeah, we within the production courses, I teach um, some marketing. We don't have a specific course yet on on that. Might be one in the works. Um, but yeah, we we focus mostly on production, um, and then we have a flagship program, our production certificate, where I do some teaching on on um, how artists launch their socials, and um, and I talk a lot about brand DNA um, within that. Yeah, that was something I, I, I took away from um, Brighton Music Conference because you were talking about Vice, one of the artists, um, not necessarily on Tool Room Academy, but one of the artists you were looking after as part of Tool Room. Um, and you spoke about that process about sitting down. And even if it was something as simple as just working out three things that you really like, you know, people often think brand and brand DNA is going to be this really deep 
complex process, but it can be as simple as just figure out three things that you like and they, they'll be the three things that you can structure your, your social and your brand about. Definitely. Yeah. I, I use Vice as like a case study where I teach um, about social media and, and building your brand. And I, I use Vice because he's someone who doesn't particularly like doing social media. He's just, his happy place is just being in the studio and then being with family. That's, that's what makes him happy. And actually he's not super keen on, um, on making content. And yet we still, you know, grew him from, from naught to, to over 30 K now. And we did, and we started from scratch, you know, and he's a huge artist now signed to Ireland and start had, you know, lots of hit records, but just like our students, he's someone who start literally started on Zoom. I remember, you know, Pete and I, Pete Griffiths, who's um, worked with me on the academy and, and actually uh, launched the Vice project. We were literally going around the office asking people to follow uh, his pages because it, we started from naught and it, it literally was, can you please follow this? And it's it's a good example of starting from zero and what we did with it is with him is is a brand dna exercise which is super simple thing that you can do as you said you're um in a brand dna exercise you're just listing interests um and hobbies that you might have so um for vice if i was to go through them it would be you know massive fan of classic chicago house music um i'd say he's a massive fan of science fiction like weird collectible toys and like batman figures um i'd say he's um someone with a really like off kilter sense of humor i'd say he's someone who loves hardware uh production and i'd say he's someone who's a big family man so these are just like different things about him that make him him and then what we did with that is figure out little bits of content that we could then use so for example um, I said he was a massive fan of Chicago House. Like what we'd do is we'd look online for old um, Acid House um, news reports or we'd take pictures of his vinyl collection of like classic Chicago records. Um, and that would be a really valid post that you could do that sort of starts telling the story of him equally. Um, you know, I said about the Batman thing. And like once we'd established that he was into that, we'd go on sites like Tumblr and Pinterest and put in search terms like Batman vinyl or Batman house music. And you'd get this really cool, interesting imagery. So the point is once you intertwine that kind of content with your more meat and potatoes, this is me in the studio, this is me at a gig. That to me is what an artist's social media page looks like. It's got little things for people to latch onto that create that identity. Um, without it being super difficult and then without it feeling forced. So yeah, it's just a little thing we teach that, as you say, makes it seem a hell of a lot easier than, 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 than people sort of make it out to be. And are there any, is there a balance between kind of quick, simple hacks and then you've got your longer term, you know, strategy building, content pillars, you know, always producing value-added content? Because I, I find that a lot of people jump straight to the second step in terms of throwing so much effort into creating amazing content and it looks really good and it's you know kind of following what whatever trend is happening but you know a lot of brands that we work with in the early stages when they're trying to grow from zero they kind of miss a trick on just you know almost teaching the algorithm that you're a person so logging on every day and engaging with people or other pages or customers and 
given Instagram something to, or not just Instagram, the social platform something to feed off. Because I think if you purely go from a broadcasting point of view and you just, you know, it's great content, but it's just getting pushed out and there's no, there's no feedback, then you're giving yourself a harder job to, to, you know, be, uh, get better reach and, and be served in front of more people. Yeah, it's so true. And, and my perception of new artists, um, and I don't know if it's the same for startup businesses, festivals, labels, but, um, there's, because they've put so much effort into this product that they're, they're building, there's this sort of mentality that, um, they just need to present it and people will come flooding to them. Um, and as you say, it's sadly not as simple as that. And essentially you need to get in and get your hands dirty and start liking other people's content and commenting and just using the, the native features of that particular platform. Um, that it wants you to be using to get up the algorithm and 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 um, and start seeing some performance, and that's that's something as well that I find with a lot of new artists. They they want they want kind of my sense is they want to, it to be perfect from the start, and actually it, it isn't. You just got to get in there and 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 get get your hands dirty and, and get make and, and get commenting and get connecting with people um, because you know otherwise you're you run the risk of just spending all this time making this really interesting stuff and and no one's no one's listening you're not you're not you know you don't have the community they're sat there waiting for you so yeah completely agree do you find artists struggle to decide which platform to be on or do they need to be on all of them at the same time or should they pick one and double down um i think the latter like i i think that in our scene, um, I, I, you know, I think in, if you had to focus on one as a new artist or a business, I do think Instagram. If, you, if there's a gun to my head, it, it would be it would be that. I know that's a really basic and simple answer because it really depends on some things. But Instagram would be the one for me to to focus on. Um, but I think that in general, you can spread yourself quite thinly if you if you try and do everything. Um, but yeah, I think. To, to kind of contradict myself as well, like you, you might want to just focus on the platform that feels more natural to you and your personality and where your audience sits. That's the other thing as well. Like I'd start with really trying to understand who your audience is and who you're aiming for. If it's, if it's a lot younger then obviously TikTok is something you might want to think about. And, um, Facebook still has its place for, you know, outside of the capital cities, Facebook still is really important. Um, and, and, there's, there's a hell of a lot of people on there. Um, Instagram, I think, is is the sweet spot for certainly for new artists and brands. But you've got to do your research on your audience. But in general, like yeah, if you're a new if you're a new artist or new business starting out, just nail one platform and just absolutely like smash that. That would be my advice. And when it comes to marketing a record launch, which I guess is a you know completely different hat that you need to put on. Talk me through the process of what goes into marketing a good record launch and also what goes into, you know, the making of a, of a bad launch as well. What, what should you try and avoid? Yeah. Um, well, at Tourum, like, I do think our strategy is slightly different in the sense that our most creative and um, vibrant campaigns are about the brand. So that's, that's the thing that we try and funnel people into, to follow the brand, buy the story of the buy into the story of the brand. Um, and then once they 
have joined our community and then we're serving them different products, um, we've kind of won at that point. But if I was to look at, say, releasing a, um, a track and coming up with a campaign for it, first of all, I'd, I think about what's the objective and it can be different things for different records. It could just be, we really want to target certain DJs and get underground credibility on one release, or it could be that we want a massive crossover hit, but being really clear on objectives. Say um, a recent release we're working on, Casey Light's Daydreamer. It's one of our re records that's out at the moment. So say the objective for that might be um, achieve 30 million streams in one year of, of its release. So I'd consider that and then I'd probably go, okay, what's the strategy to achieve that objective? What are the different strategies? What are the kind of driving decisions we're going to make to achieve that objective? So the strategy for KC Lights Daydreamer might be Number one, we want to position KC Lights as the next MK. Um, it might be number two, we want to like make this the festival anthem of 2022. And number three, it might be um, we want this to be a really credible record that then crosses over to mainstream popularity. So they might be our three strategies. And then from those strategies, you derive different tactics that are going to achieve those strategies. So it could be um, we're going to yeah, make a load of really good on-sale content um, that's going to deliver our commercial message and the creative of that is going to really match what we're aiming for strategically. So we want intelligence, summer vibes, we want positivity. Um, another tactic might be, okay, we're going to make a documentary about Casey Lights to present him as this new artist that's, you know, the most credible young British talent coming through. Um, or, and then it might be, okay, we need to get crossover here. So we need to get this on Love Island. It can go as granular as that. So the way we look at it is, yeah, objectives, the number of strategic drivers we're going to achieve, then loads of different tactics that we're going to employ to, to make those happen. And what are some of the best record launches that you've worked on? I think um, the Vice work was, was really, really strong. Um, going from his initial records through to Feel My Needs, which I, I think is like fair to say, like one of the most, like the biggest house records of the last five years. Um, what I really liked about that was that we kind of told the story very gradually over quite a long campaign of different releases. And we had, we had some that were um, purely setting up the next one. Um, you know, um, and it was all felt, it felt like it was all inevitably leading to this big crossover record that we had. Um, but if you look at the campaigns, funny enough, they were, they were super lean when I think about it. Like it, you compare some of the campaigns we've done to achieve the kind of crossover success that we have compared to some other like major labels. The, the, the investment is, is tiny compared to what majors might put in to theirs. And I think. It, that again comes back to the fact we've built this community at Toolroom that means that it's so much easier for us to hit the market um, because we've got this super engaged audience that's there that's ready for us um, to release music. So yeah, Vice I'd say was was a great example of what an independent label like Toolroom can can achieve. Yeah, Simon Dunmore spoke about this when we. Um we caught up with them and we were trying to understand the idea of this the 360 model that they've mm -hmm. built. And he was, he was, you know, quite honest in saying they've got the 
events there to book the DJs, play the tracks. Then they've got the huge social channels to promote the tracks that the DJs are playing. And then the social channels will drive the um, the record sales. And they've, they've kind of nailed that formula in terms of all of the different arms of the business. But I imagine it's the same with, with Tool Room when you've got the events, you've got huge socials, and then you've got the records coming out. Does that follow a similar, similar life cycle? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, um, it's a business that has lots of kind of complementary avenues and angles. Um, I'd say that, you know, certainly the, the label for us is, is the driver, um, of everything. And, and then I think a lot of the, the activations come from that, like the academy. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd say that's, that's definitely the case. We've, we've, we, the thing with Tour and we've, we've got a number of different, businesses within the business so we also we have um a label services company we run quite a lot of other people's record labels as well um we yeah we have a publishing arm management arm um and of course the events that we run globally so i think that's one of the you know the, the joys of being at tool room is like it it's sort of sat off in its own its own world in maystone but it is this kind of powerful machine of different businesses that all um, interconnect and, and help each other. And is there anything that you would avoid with a record launch or have you, you know, have you thought of not necessarily a campaign that you've run, but, you know, launches that haven't gone so well and what the reasons for that are? We, um, yeah, we do. There's times I think where you can get into the trap of, in my opinion, making a load of content that's for that's trying to impress um the key decision makers at like spotify or radio and i think you can fall into a trap of writing campaigns for not for the actual audience of people consuming it but for like the business behind it so there's times at, at tour and we've done these really intricate involved campaigns and i've you know thought to myself we're, we're doing this to tick a box for spotify or for apple more so than to really truly engage our audience um and i and i think that's that's a problem that that you can go down and it can end up being um it, it can end up watering down your message and, and being quite expensive the other thing as well is when you um when you try and get a record to cross over and um and it isn't quite happening and it isn't people aren't quite accepting it i still think sometimes that marketers can kid themselves that you can really change people's opinions on a track. I think, say with Feel My Needs, it took on this life of its own because it connected to people's hearts and minds. And our marketing camp content really just, um, you know, kept that going. It kept that um, advocacy going. But you can't kid people. You can't, like we have a saying at Tourum, you, don't, you can't kid the kids. You can't change people's perceptions. If they're not feeling a track, you've got to like let it go and that can be quite painful when you've you've invested in it and you really believe in it but sometimes you can get caught into go oh let's make another video or let's 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 do another massive ad campaign and you've got to learn to kind of walk away so it's getting that balance between um you know knowing when the audience has said no um and when you feel that you've given everything you can as a marketing team so when we're thinking about tool room, you're working across so many arms of the business. You're, you're starting a new arm of the business yourself. Um, and I guess I just love observing people or brands who deliver excellence and generally who are the best in their field at what they do. 
Um, what does a week look like? You look like for you as as marketing director at Tool Room and also across the academy. Yeah, um, it's there's a lot of I guess um, juggling those two things. I mean, in all honesty, I've been in almost like secondment to the academy for the last year. So you know, I have to shout out my colleagues in the marketing team that have been holding it down. Um, you know, without without me largely because. The academy has been so successful that I've been focusing really, really hard on that. Um, but in general terms, my, my week is, is very varied. It's a lot of, um, managing people, sitting down with people, checking that, you know, they, they know what they're doing and they're happy. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of dealing with, with numbers, like, the higher up you get, I find you kind of get further away from the thing that made you the thing that the you really enjoyed. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I, <laughs> I love copywriting. I love being involved in campaigns, but unfortunately, like I'm essentially trying to guide a team to do that now rather than getting stuck in myself. Um, but yeah, to be more specific, I do a lot of work around product development at the academy. So I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking of ways we can innovate and create products that are a bit disruptive and will drive revenue for the business. Um, and on the marketing side of things, um, I guess it's ensuring we're, we're telling the story of the brand as we, as we want to, um, ensuring that, um, you know, the performance of our socials is strong, um, ensuring that the quality of our content is, is good. But as I said, you know, I've got, we've got an amazing team and I think, I have to say throughout this podcast, if I've said I at any point, I really mean we. Like it is such a team effort here. Um, I'm just representing really a load of very talented and amazing people um, that work tirelessly behind the scenes. So, so yeah, it's it's for me. It's like just making sure the team um, are happy um, and have everything they they need to do the amazing work that they're doing. And when we mentioned at the start, you know tool room is tool room for a reason and it's got such a a strong brand identity but i think with that comes in the background which is what loads of people don't see is the, the rhythms processes you know quality control checks um which sounds relatively boring when, when you say it out loud but I've, yeah. I've worked with them you know i've been fortunate to work with all different types of, of events festivals brands clubs venues but some of the very very best i've worked with um often say no to more things than, than they say yes to and they are um I don't want to use the word precious, but yeah, I think precious in a good way that they, mm. you know, just have such a, a tight quality control across everything. How, when you're, you know, working on campaigns and training the team and getting people to kind of deliver things to that level of ex- excellence, do you have anything in place to achieve that? Yeah, I mean, we have we have brand guidelines. Um, I I think that initially when we rebranded, I was a lot more granular and analytical about being really specific on 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 quality assurance um but in general because of our creative is very typographic driven that's our style we're very very tight on you know our typography tracking kerning all those things that that keep things consistent on a on typographic level um so we have like brand guidelines in that sense and our designers um really you know really experienced at ensuring that's the case outside of that um yeah we we have we have like systems where we 
have, um, you know, we have a content schedule, we have an approval process, but in general, you know, like I'm, I kind of know myself, my strengths and weaknesses, and I know I'm not actually a great detail person. Um, I, I think to be a really good brand director, you do need a bit of that. And oftentimes you get people that are either really, really good at strategy and then those that are really analytical, good at, at detail. And being totally honest, like I've never been like super strong on detail, but I make sure I surround myself with people who have that, that hyper focus and attention to detail. Um, so it's, it's getting that balance in the team. Um, we used to have um, like a double tick procedure on anything. Whereas now I feel so confident in, in my team that they know they they know what feels tool room on on brand and and what doesn't, and yes, that's some of that is to do with like the technicality of kerning, and some of it is to do with understanding our brand values and our qualities and what feels right. And there's occasions where we might get it wrong when we have a conversation and talk about it, but the key thing is you you've imbued your team with that ability to understand what feels tool room and what doesn't. Um, and I, and I, when I was younger, I really hated it when people were like breathing over my neck going, oh, is that exactly right? I'd actually rather take a couple of mistakes, um, in the short term for someone to instead feel empowered and free to go and be creative and do their job. I think that's so much more important and allowing them to just go for it and, and yeah, make your mistake, but actually develop and grow through confidence of being allowed to do things themselves. So that's that's my mindset on that, which probably isn't the right answer as a brand director, but like <laughs> <laughs> um, that's how I feel. But my, as I said, the team's so amazing, I don't really have to step in too much. No, I think it's 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 a nice way of putting it, you know, rather than micromanaging with a million processes and 10,000 sign-off checks, yeah. you should actually focus on making sure everyone understands the brand, what the brand is, what the brand isn't, and, and the vision, and then they can use their intuition to to apply that where where it's needed it, it sounds like a lot of that um will have come from the rebrand process that you went through in 2014 which helped reset i'm really intrigued to know what what you would say is a tool room idea and what isn't like what would be it yeah what would pass what that isn't, isn't i think um going back to like our values like being quite like quality independent um approachable they're like the, my three, my three favorite words about tool room. And if we put out a piece of content that feels that it isn't any of those things, it isn't at least one of those things. Um, I'm not feeling it. I'm trying to think of, of a specific example where, um, something isn't tool room. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is like, we, we are on this constant journey of, of like, checking ourselves because we went through a phase where we were pushing tool and family a lot. And, and then sometimes we were going, is this, is this just a bit too friendly? Is this a bit insipid? Do we need to have a bit more edge? And, and so you find as a brand, you're kind of, you're going back and forth a little bit between, between different energies and values. And at the moment, our focus really is about club culture and reconnecting with club culture. So, um, we had a really, in some ways, successful lockdown period financially because the business reacted to that by changing our release schedule to more streamable music in, in the context of there being no clubs. So 
as much as it was a hideous time, obviously for all involved, we had we we weathered it pretty well. But the the impact of that has been we feel now a little bit like we've disconnected too much from like authentic organic club culture. So at the moment, the tone of our socials and our content is all about that it's like i don't want to see stuff that's too friendly and too welcoming actually i want it to be like we're about the club it's a bit more you know this is raw this is what we're here for so we want to get back to that a bit so it's a really interesting thing it's an evolving thing getting that mix of content right and your personality across and it's about timing and what's right for the for the wider business um when you look back on the the rebrand from 2014 what was the why behind that because I, I I agree. I think you can't can never see brand as a as a stagnant force. It's something you need to constantly you know reevaluate and and evolve over time. But what was the reason for such a big reset in two thousand and fourteen? We'd um, we'd done a big anniversary campaign the year before Tour and Ten, and we we were like just obsessed with scale. We were like we want to be like a mini ministry. We want to be massive. We want to be this um, massive dance brand that speaks to everyone everywhere. We did a massive world tour. We did TV advertised comp, which is quite a big deal for, for an independent label. Um, at that time, it was much more expensive than it is now on TV. Um, and we did this big back catalogue album. And in that whole process, I think we realised that the business had got bigger than the brand if that makes sense. Like we would, we had this enormous scale and great revenue, but we'd lost a bit of like meaning and identity. And at the same time, we noticed in electronic music, this was when EDM was exploding. And then there was that reaction to it with Deep House. Um, and we'd kind of flirted a bit with EDM, but also really our heart was more in house. And it resulted in, one week we'd have like a hardware record out and then the next would be a dusky record. And the problem with that is you kind of fall in the gap because you're, you're neither one thing or the other. So I felt like my, my reading of it was, um, great for money and like we were smashing it, but I could see that we were losing, um, identity and meaning. Um, and we were going to have to make a choice because the scene was polarizing. So we went through a process of talking about that and, and talking about what it would mean for us to, to, to reconnect and reset what the label was and what it stood for. Um, and in the end, we decided to stick with what we were passionate about musically and leave behind um, a certain type of musical decision-making. Um, and we combined that with a visual rebrand as well and i think that's the thing that's really important with branding is aesthetics is like the last bit like the, for me the fun bit is the analysis of strategy and, and really like getting into what's right on the product what's our audience saying you know all that classic five p's of marketing the promotion bit is is the bit that's last um so yeah it was it was reacting to to where to to the landscape the environment um and we what we did is we we repositioned the label as being about house tech house and techno 
which seems really obvious now based on what Tallroom is. But back then, that was quite a bold statement to make, I think, and um, combined it with a new visual. And it was called Reset. We launched it with three artists, Vice um, on one hand, Mark Knight uh, and Adrian Auer, um, representing our musical space through people. And um, it was it actually... We took quite a big hit for a couple of years, and, and I remember going, "Oh my God, is this? Have I plunged this label into, uh, into disaster? Is this is this the end of my music career?" Um, but you you know you take you take a risk, and it paid off. Um, um, I was listening to your podcast with Simon Dunmore and the book. Um, I think it's by Seth Godin about tribes. It's so true, you know, like, and that's. Another thing that was changing at the time, you know, the media landscape was changing and it was all about building those online communities that you're, that were your tribe. And you can't do that by having a really broad offering. You've got to have something quite specific and niche. Um, so we did that and it paid off in the end and, and it, it got towards 2015 ish. And that's when Vice really took off. Um, and he, he, he really, for me, paved the way for, for the new tour room and, and what we could be and what we could be musically and Mark as well, who, who came, came to the party with some great records. And, um, it's got to the point now where when people see the T on Spotify, they know, they know it's quality. They know it's us. Um, and so, yeah, as a, as a, you know, brand manager, now brand director, I think that's job done when you, you know, people see your logo, people see your T. And they have a feeling. It's the same thing I have with Nike. You know, whenever I see the tick, it makes me feel something. It makes me feel empowered to do physical exercise. That's what great brands do. It's it's that feeling that you you give you give your audience when when they when they see you. So yeah, I, I think it comes with a level of building trust with people in terms of a trust that you expect a certain quality or standard as well. And the example that. Um, got me thinking about that was uh boomtown uh, so rory um uh one of our senior strategists at mustard wrote an article recently about the uncomfortable truth about why your tickets aren't selling which is a pretty hot topic on everyone's mind at the minute and his approach was to look at okay which felt which, which festivals are selling and i guess it's trying to understand you know which brands thrive in a recession because i guess it's it's almost like survival of the fittest and the ones that we're still killing it this year. We're the ones with really strong brands. Don't get me wrong, really strong products and offering and quite, you know, remarkable production. Um, um, but Boom Boomtown, so uh, uh, Dulcie Horn, who runs the, the marketing for Boomtown, shared it and said that um, Boomtown this year had sold out with no lineup. They, you know, they came out and said, we're, we're not going to release the lineup for different reasons. And arguably, maybe the most expensive, one of the most expensive tickets in the market, and they sold out without a lineup, um, which I thought was brilliant. But then I thought it's not, it's not that you can any festival can think, oh, I can sell out without a lineup now. It's more that people trust Boomtown so much in their quality of delivery that you know they can market the whole thing without a lineup because people know when they get there, it's going to be of a certain standard and it's going to fit within a certain, you know, tribe of person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I thought it was a really, a really powerful tool and a powerful way of looking at it. But when I think about brand, it's such an intangible nut that everyone's trying to crack and everyone's got different ways of saying it. It's a word that probably gets 
thrown about in in um, in many different contexts. When when you think of brand and in particular with that that brand and process, let's say I'm a festival, I want to rebrand my festival. What's the process or what comes first for you? I agree that the visual stuff comes last, but what where would you start with a brand and 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 how to position it? I always yeah, um, it's always going to be for me. Um, what I want to get to is dif- differentiation. That that's really the key word for me. And h- how you you get to that is by understanding your audience and how they feel about you, understanding your competitive environment, um, and then your key strengths as a business. And if you can make all those things coalesce, then you can get differentiation. I think I think that's the key challenge. It's something I. I learned at Toolroom and, and at universities as well, actually, when I was working at a couple of universities and um, both kind of, both the universities I worked for had, were really in towards the bottom of their league tables and they sat in a really um, similar pool of other universities that would be their competitors. And the challenge was like, how do you find something distinctive for people to latch onto when you've got essentially a load of similar products? Or, or brands, and it's it's definitely true. I think in um, in in the event space, um, especially when you're seeing lineups having less diversity in terms of difference between them, like, and it's also true of labels that essentially are putting out. You know, I mean, we could analyze it to the cows come home, but essentially it's the same thing. Like you're you're putting out house music or techno or whatever. So finding differentiation from your competitors is the key thing and i think you achieve that through as i say complete understanding of the competitive landscape a really granular understanding of your audience um, and some really honest conversations about what is our product and why is it different and how does it serve our audience once you've figured all that out and you land on your differentiation then you can make some really cool creative and that's really the easy bit and that's the fun bit but all that bit beforehand all that analysis is marketing um, and so something that people don't necessarily understand from the outside. They think marketing is just, let's make some nice design or make a nice video and post it at 6 p.m. on Instagram with this hashtag. Yeah, that's all part of it. But it's all the stuff before that that I, I find intellectually quite stimulating and love talking about. Are there any other brands in the music industry or, or potentially outside that you use as, as a benchmark or, or inspiration? Yeah, like, I mean, outside of music, I love Nike. I, I absolutely adore their their work, um, and it's been a massive influence on my work at Toolroom and especially the Academy. Um, my favourite ever campaign is one Nike did called "Find Your Greatness," which was um, yeah, it was it was quite innovative at the time. It's, it sounds obvious now, but they were amongst the first people to use um, non-athletic, quote unquote, athletic. Um, people in their campaigns um, to talk about the sort of empowerment of people doing physical exercise and the they're so good that Nike is so good that you could they could write copy and put it up on a billboard and you take away their typography and take away the tick and you'd probably go that's Nike just from the way they can their tone of voice just just their attitude their spirit comes across I love Nike. I think they're so inspirational. I, again, use them a lot with the Academy, particularly in our marketing, constant reference point. Within music, I'm a massive fan of Anjuna. I think for their purity 
of their brand message. It's just so like they found their niche and they are absolutely nailing it. And they, they've done it on their own terms and, and they're almost like a major now in their scale. They've, they've really scaled their business so cleverly, but their actual brand is again, it's, it's so pure what it stands for and the execution of it is just sublime. Um, so I absolutely love Angina. And then going back into the past a bit, I always loved ministry and cream back in the day, like their late nineties, like early two thousands, when you had that enormous commercial scale that these festivals and compilation CDs were like selling a million. And there was some really iconic brand work that, that they both did ministry, particularly they managed to like, I remember they put out, um, ads that on the tube that be, they'd photograph like real clubbers in the moment looking kind of it'd be like 3 41 a.m and they'd have like like a really big photo of the club going off just really really clever copy and what they did was they managed to balance being like a bit disruptive and a bit like on the edge of being a bit sort of i don't know what the word is not too um not corporate they weren't corporate they're were a bit naughty but they were also this m massive mainstream operation and I, I always loved how they balanced that on a marketing level like being a little bit sub yeah subversive is the word i'm looking for but also super commercial and it takes such skill to do that so yeah that, that they're, they're iconic to me ministry from from the from the 90s and early 2000s certainly and actually the guy that um we got to rebrand tool room simon moore i have to shout him out uh, um his agency baby um that's the reason i wanted to work with him on our rebrand was because he he'd done all that really iconic ministry stuff back then oh incredible i'll have to check that out so we spoke about tool room we spoke about tool room academy i want to find out a bit more about you and what made your your journey so successful um you know, when you look back on the, on the first day of your career in the music industry and where you are now, what's what's the biggest difference? What's what's changed the most? Um, gosh, I'd say I'd say confidence probably. Like I, I think that naturally I'm very much. If there's a scale of like introvert extrovert, I'm definitely the former. I'm definitely more introvert, and I think that in my twenties, in my early career, I definitely struggled with confidence and I, and I was very, I used to be very frustrated with myself all the time for not like getting involved in meetings and really saying what I was thinking. And, um, I, I'd never like dominate a conversation. And I think, um, the difference now is I'm still kind of like that deep down actually, but I've kind of learned how to, how to fight that bit of me. You know, I've learned with now, like, if I'm in a meeting and um, say with the marketing team and it's like Friday at 4 p.m. and we're all a bit knackered and a bit drained, um, the leader or the leader of the team has to be the one adding energy into the fire. You've got to be chucking the coal into the fire and you've got to be the one getting it going and making yourself look stupid if you have to, just saying stuff. And, and that's the thing that I struggled with when I was younger. I'd, I'd very much be more passive in that moment and the difference between me now is i've learned how to kind of find that that energy to to get that going and um equally though i i am passionate that you don't have to be really extrovert and out there in order to be successful in life 
And I think that you can, there's a lot of qualities that you can have as a natural introvert that you can use to your own advantage. And I think I have, and it certainly worked here at Tool Room. Um, but I think that's the main difference really is I'm a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm more confident and more able to speak out. And that's, you know, going back to, to Mark and Stu and, and how they've mentored me and made me feel comfortable here. That's, that's been such a big, you know, a big win for me is, is, is their help in, in, as I said earlier, getting me out of my own head and caring less about, you know, worrying about things. They're, they're, they're people who, you know, they honestly, um, will back you. You know, that kind of blind loyalty you have with family where you're just like, so for me, if someone said my sister's murdered someone, I'd be like, no, she hasn't. You know, <laughs> and, and they're, they're kind of like that with, with their staff and with me. And, and that fills me with such confidence that I can go and then be me. So it's, it's been very liberating that for me personally. And are there any successful habits that you practice that you wish everyone would live by? Um, listen, listen more. I, th- I think it's such an underrated thing just to listen more. And, um, you know, that's, as I was saying earlier, one of the good things about being more naturally, um, introverted is that you do naturally do that and and you're not always trying to dominate the conversation you're, you're happy to sit back and listen to people because people surprise you you don't underestimate people that you think might not have a great idea because they, 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 they very well might and that's something I've learned a lot in my career is is sometimes the people you won't expect to, to to nail it and have this genius idea that actually do they've got them sat there brimming they just you need to listen more um, and the other thing is like read, read widely, read deeply, read widely. Some of the more successful things in my own career have come from reading or studying. Like as an example, that article about the superfan. If I hadn't have read that, then maybe we wouldn't have gone and done a lot of the Torum family stuff. Um, for the Torum Academy, I took a course with Google like a lot of marketers of my generation, we did this particular digital marketing course with Google. And that was actually one of the reasons that I thought Tourum as a brand could pivot into online education because I'd seen it with Google. And if I hadn't have done that course, then I wouldn't have thought of Tourum Academy. So yeah, listen, read, study, all those like bookish things that sound a bit boring, but I think, <laughs> um, I think are important. Yeah, I completely agree. I th- on the point of listening, I think, um, especially in the music industry, it's so often, you know, the loudest person in the room is is the right one because they're just, you know, shouting above everyone else. Um, and I, I used to struggle with that, I guess, in the early stages of my career. Anyone who's kind of getting into, you know, into a new industry, you're, you know, you're, you tend to avoid conflict and you kind of just go with um, what the loud people are saying. But then I read this article and it was called How to Avoid Bad Arguments. And it's not treating arguments in the sense that it's, you know, a shout and match. You know, most people have a debate of some sort every day um, in work. And they were speaking about basically a lot of people, I guess it was that article, sorry, and there was a TED Talk by um, a lady called Celeste Heady. I think I've got a name right. And she talked about 10 ways to have a better conversation. And some of them are so, so simple. Um, but she mentioned some quotes. Uh, one of them was from Buddha who said, if, if your mouth is open, you're not learning. And that that always, always stuck with me. 
Um, but anyway, the, the article that talks about basically how to avoid bad arguments said that most people almost try and debate in a way that protects them from their argument being brought down. So they'll, you know, over-exaggerate the opposition's argument or you know, there's all these different tactics that people, you know, subconsciously do to try and protect themselves from, I guess, rejection on their own idea. But this article pushes for, I think it's called the Iron Man argument, where they say, until you can articulate someone's argument back to them, even better than they can describe it to begin with, only then have you got a platform to then put yours forward. Otherwise, you're just two people shouting at each other. Love that. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And I read a book, um, it's by Susan Cain, um, Power of Introverts, called Quiet, the Power, of In- the Power of Introverts. And there's a lot of similar stuff in there. Um, and, and it also kind of goes, it covers how like the prevalence of groupthink and the kind of idea that the best um, even the, the best ideas come from this sort of open plan world that we live in where it's about, you know, group thinking, um, brainstorming together is like the only way that you can work. And actually it's a really interesting book because it says it's just as valid to just, you know, go off on your own and, and, and have a moment and read and think. And that's kind of, what I'm like, I'm someone, no, it sounds bad, but my best ideas for myself come from spending time almost on my own or, or, or thinking about something really deeply on my own for a while and then leaving it and not thinking about it. And then the idea comes and that's just the way I work. That's just, that's just the way my mind is. Um, whereas for others, it's all about this, um, communication of ideas and back and forth. But I think for me, like I, I love working environments that allow either way, however you're minded to, to thrive. And that's something that I hopefully I bring here is like, not everyone's the same. Some people are like really bullshy and, and, and super extrovert and some people are more quiet and, and, and um, insular and contemplate more. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not contributing. doesn't mean they've not got good ideas. So yeah, that's, that's something that that's really important to me. And I also think that, sorry to shine. I, th- I think as well, like from my experience when I was younger, I remember going to conferences or just meeting people with similar job titles to me that now that seemed so like impossibly big and grandiose and important and i remember thinking oh, i'm never going to get there like there must be something different about that person that i don't have and actually having got there myself that isn't like i wake up every day going how am i going to do this have, 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 I, have i blagged my way here like that that's still there so you know, I always encourage anyone who's listening that's at the beginning of their career journey, um, who, who thinks it's an impossible leap to get to sort of direct level. Like it, 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 it isn't like, and there's nothing different about me than anyone else. Like you, you can totally do it. And, um, you know, I just, I'm always keen to, to shout out the fellow introverts in the audience, because if I've done it, then in, you certainly can. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I actually think the only difference between me and the start of my career, I guess, is, you know, it comes with experience and a bit of technical, um, you know, a bit of technical skills. But a lot of it is down to I think it's a superpower to be able to articulate an idea well. And I think lots of uh, basically a good idea not articulated well is a bad idea. That's something I've, I've really learned over the years. And I guess, you know, 
working in strategy, simplicity is 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 always key, really. And I've become really mindful of things like fluff. I, I read this uh, book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, um, which kind of came from from a, a, a kind of client experience. And we were kind of going through strategic work and they were like it's not strategic enough and I was like I literally sat on my laptop and googled what is strategy <laughs> I was, I was like, no, one's ever, no one's ever told me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I landed on this book and um yeah it's by R- Richard Rummelf and he talks about fluff uh fluff is basically a sign that you don't know what you're on about in a in layman's terms so when you see people talk about like you know things in really big words it, if you can just uh, uh, articulate something in the most kind of direct, simple terms, I think you've really understood it. So that was one, um, I wouldn't say it's a superpower I've, I've completely mastered, but that's something I've, I've always tried to, um, to learn. And I guess, you know, that, and I guess that kind of feeds into to confidence and having energy behind an idea. Cause a lot of what I do is collaborative workshops with clients and, and, you know, everyone's pitching ideas, but if you can like back your, idea to the to the hills but also you know going back to the iron man argument of being able to being open to feedback on it you know already knowing the blind spots of that idea and being humble enough to accept that and change it i think that's something i learned and then i guess the third thing which is more of like a you know a bit more relevant to like internal teams and line management and stuff is just always being solution orientated because I found that, you know, as soon as you start to manage people and then suddenly you've got people you're responsible for and then your, your plate's busy with things you've got to do and managing them. When people come to you with problems all the time, it, it you realise it gives your, your the, you know, the person above you so much extra work. So I realised, you know, I'd go to, to Rob, who's um, RMD in the early days, but I've got this problem and he'd just constantly go, how do you want to fix it? Like just yeah, give me yeah. something I can give it a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So I was like, right, okay. It's obviously really annoying them that I keep coming to them with problems. So then I'd re- think, okay, I'm going to come to them with a problem and my ideal solution. And then all he's got to do is give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And then over time, then he, and then suddenly it just gets to the point where, you know, we just have to approve anything. And I used to hate getting things approved. It used to wind me up. Not because I don't want feedback, but it's more like I'm a doer. I like to get things done. Yeah, yeah. And I found the process of approvals was, was slowing me down. So I'd always try and get in the mindset of whoever's approving this, what could they possibly feedback on this before I've sent it? And I'd always try and address that up front. And, you know, it's things that come with time and experience. But when I look back, I think it's nothing massively technical that I've, I've, I've really learned. It's more just almost like softer skills of just how to communicate with people and deal with people and manage expectations, I think, is, um, has been a big part of it. Yeah, that's such good advice. You're so true. Like, you know if that's something I've noticed with new members of staff here, like that it's easy to spot mistakes. Like that's, but you really shine through if, exactly as you say, here's, this is an issue I've spotted and here's a solution. You're like, wow. You know, if you, you'd be surprised people don't do that. And it's such a, it's such a good, simple bit of advice that, that can get your reputation up internally so quickly. So yeah, great shout. Yeah. There's, there's a concept called the, um, permissionless apprentice which you can use it in different contexts but it's it's not just talking about you know actually being a role of an apprentice but it's more do things without being asked to because I used you know again going back to moon experience I used to find a bit of software that I wanted to use and I'll send it to Rob and say oh can we use this and he's like well how much is it is it worth it um, and I do was kind of wait for his approval to do things whereas I just started if I wanted something to change or like a process to change I'd do it 
and not really asking, just say, I'm going to do this, by the way, just as a heads up, rather than I want your approval to be able to do this. And then over time, you just really trust people to just crack on then because you they, you guess you're showing your thinking outside the box and not having to. Um, I think I actually think approvals are like the death of productivity. Yeah, and yeah. what you should try and do is get people to um, test their own logic. So it's not, it's, you know, it's not coming to you saying, can we sign off this campaign? It's, this is my idea for the campaign. This is the thinking behind it. Do you want to test my thinking rather than actually approving the nuts and bolts of it? If that makes sense. Yeah, love that. So if you reflect on all of the success that you've had so far, if there's one thing, let's say someone's starting out now, they want to know how to get to where you are right now. If you had to put your secret to success down to one thing, what would it be? Um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, one thing. Hmm. I think um, for me, I think that... Um, I, I, I don't know if I can think of one thing. I mean, certainly a mistake I think people make is they stay places too long. And I, and I think one thing I did was I did move around. And if something wasn't working for me and I felt like I'd made everything or taken everything from that experience or from that position, then I was quite ruthless about leaving and, and moving on. Um, I think... Sometimes in the music industry, there's a tendency to, because the experience can be so fun and it can become part of like your identity, like I'm a music person, I work in music, it's cool. You can kind of lean into that a little bit and end up sort of not really being reflective as to if you're growing and if you're moving on. And, you, and you, I've, I've seen people in that kind of mid-career slumps where they've stayed too long, they've just enjoyed that ride of you know the fact it's cool and it's music um whereas i think if you're a bit more um if you're ambitious to get to higher up in a company and and all the perks that come with that then you've got to be quite brutal about thinking have i taken everything i can from this am i better off moving on and trying something else because one thing that i think helped me was i've been in some different industries um, and at different labels and it all kind of coalesced at the right time when I found the right place for me. So I actually moved up quite quickly with the rebrand of the new Academy and that cemented my reputation and I was off. But I think all of that came from a lot of moves beforehand in my twenties. I don't think I ever was truly satisfied and just stayed somewhere. Um, maybe that's not always a good thing because you, Sometimes it is good just to enjoy the moment and live in the moment, but I've always been super ambitious and, and quite critical of myself. So I've always had that drive to, to push on. So yeah, I don't know if that's quite a rambly answer, but I, th I think that have, having the courage to assess if something isn't, you're not learning anymore, you're not growing anymore and, and being quite, quite, you know, ruthless about moving on and trying something new. I think that's how you get up higher quicker. Don't just cling on and stay somewhere forever and hope it will change for you, which is easily done in music because it's hard. It's hard to move around. There's fewer opportunities. Supply demand means, you know, it, it isn't always an um, employee's market. Um, so I know it's hard. And don't be afraid to try other industries as well. That's, you know, there's this kind of thing, oh, I can't leave music, I can't leave music. Like you can, and you can go and try other stuff and learn and come back in again. And, it, and I think it adds 
it adds a lot to you as a person. Oh, 100%. I think the music industry can sometimes be a, a victim of copying and pasting. And, you know, once one trend happens, everyone just does, you know, does yeah, a launch yeah. in, in that way because someone's done it. But I, I, I always try and look at, at football, sports, film industries, fashion, and try and extract that back. But, you know, to go away and actually work in those industries and understand the nuances of, of them and bring them back, I think is um, a real advantage in this in this industry. But thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. I think you've um yeah, you've just been so so honest about all of the, you know, the the secrets to your campaigns with Tool Room, the innovation that you've achieved with um with the Academy, but also your your personal journey, you know, mastering the the art of promotion, um, and I guess how you've you've personally developed throughout your career. So I just want to say thank you for sharing that. I found that so insightful. I'm very nosy. I love to know how people do things and, and why they do them. So I've uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sean.